Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On this episode, we'll first be covering news about the creation of a new international coalition for religious freedom in North Korea, launched on June 14. President and co-founder of Acton Institute, Reverend Robert Sirico, joins the podcast here to talk about the communist ideology in North Korea, as well as his hopes for the coalition. After that, I speak with Bruce Ashford, professor of theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, to talk about the relationship between family and state, plus ways that he's seeing the breakdown of the family unit. Bruce will also be at Acton in Grand Rapids to talk more about the subject on July 18. And there's still time to save your spot and register at acton.org events. Also, I wanted to thank so much of you who have emailed me with feedback for the podcast and given me your suggestions for guests and topics. I love hearing from our listeners. And if you want to email me to give any feedback about the podcast or even just say hi, you can reach me at actonline at acton.org. Last and definitely not least, if you like this podcast, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Welcome. I'm Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute, and I am joined today by Father Robert Sirico, President and Co-Founder of the Acton Institute. Today we'll be talking about the importance of religious freedom for both religious and civic life and the recent founding of an association to promote religious freedom in North Korea. Welcome, Father Robert. Great to be with you. Thank you. Religious freedom is something we often take for granted in the United States, in spite of some of the historical injustices and some pressing contemporary concerns um, with religious liberty. It's kind of baked into our constitutional order and is something we don't really think and reflect about a lot. Why is religious liberty important sort of for spiritual reasons? Well, I, I think the, the fundamental dignity of the human person is manifested in their, their freedom. So uh, God gives us and places the control of our destiny in our own hands. Uh, and we must make a choice. And so it's only when we um, choose God and at some point, we have to make that choice for God. So in that sense, there is a, a connection between our spirituality, that is the interior state of our souls, and our willing acquiescence to God. Uh, you know, in the, in the incarnation, when the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she will be the mother of the incarnate son of the eternal father, the mother of the Messiah, the first thing she says is fiat, yes, I will, amen, let it be done. That's usually the way it's translated, which echoes what Jesus teaches in the Our Father, uh, fiat voluntas tua, let your will be done. We acquiesce to your will. So that's the connection that you asked me specifically with yeah. regard to the spiritual connection. Now, there's a whole other dimension constitutionally and organizationally, institutionally, that's important too here. Yeah, that 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 civic life. Civic um, life, exactly. In, in in what sense is religious liberty important there? Well, it's important, uh, and and this is uh, a lot of people talk about this. There are a lot of organizations that that speak about just the inherent right of people's conscience, the right uh, not only to worship, 
you know, religious freedom is not just the freedom to worship. There was that whole confusion and I think insidious uh, attempt on the part of people to say, well, you know, we want to privatize religion, so it's just an act of worship. But the uh, what is guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States, and I think recognized um, also, uh, for instance, in the um, Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations, uh, based in natural law, is that people have the right to religious liberty, which means the building of institutions. And here's the the dimension that I want to emphasize, especially coming from the perspective of the Acton Institute, is that there is a connection to religious liberty and the right to private property. Because it's one thing to say I have the right to, you know, worship the way I want, uh, but part of at least Christian worship, and I know uh, similarly with regard to Jewish and uh, other religious institution, institutions and faiths, it is that we want to build institutions, for instance, to help the poor, schools, hospitals, orphanages, that that is an expression of our freedom inspired by our religion. And if we don't have the right to do that because there's some kind of confiscation of our property or extreme control over our property or penalties or licensing uh, and certification requirements that inhibit our ability to run an orphanage, to run a hospital, to run a school, then our religious liberty is being curtailed, even if it's just being done in the name of the regulatory state. So I think that's another dimension of this thing that a lot of people don't emphasize. They emphasize the conscience dimension of it, which, of course, is is essential. But there has to be an institutional practical dimension as well. Yeah. And, and with that, it's it's good to turn to North Korea because that's that's a society in which that institutional eviscerated, virtually just, eviscerated. Yeah, and officially, the communist regime in North Korea is an atheistic state, um, and as often the case with these sort of regimes, there's there's some lip service paid to religious freedom in the constitution. Um, I think there's a Potomkin church. Yeah. in in North Korea. Yeah one one of the one of the uh, other parties. There's actually, you know, multi. Uh, officially, it's a multi-party state. All those parties are, of course, in coalition with each other. But right. one of them is of an of a of a religious character. Oh, I um, didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, of a Korean sort of uh, uh, syncretistic mm-hmm. tradition. Okay. Um, but all of that is, you know, the degree to which there's anything like that. It's only when it's officially sanctioned, supervised. Otherwise, it's completely suppressed. Um, and the other curious and relevant fact about uh, North Korea is the personality cult of uh, the eternal president, uh, Kim Il-sung, who was um, the grandfather of the, of the, of the current ruler. Um, and to give our listeners an insight into this cult, I'd like to highlight a few points from the official sort of uh, what's called the 10 principles for the establishment of a monolithic ideological system. Uh, and, and just to read off the first four, um, we must give all in the struggle to unify the entire society with the revolutionary ideology of the great leader Kim Il-sung. We must honor the great leader, comrade Kim Il-sung, with all our loyalty. We must make absolute the authority of the great leader, uh, comrade Kim Il-sung. And we must make the great leader, comrade Kim Il-sung's revolutionary ideology our faith and make his instructions our creed, end quote. Um, This sounds an awful lot like a religion. Um, And in the absence of religious freedom, does the state 
always seek to fill in that gap. Well, it it is exactly the tension, right, from from the earliest days of Christianity between um, the threat that the Roman state felt toward Christianity. Let's let's remember that Christianity is predicated on the fear of the Roman state that someone would come and be king. Are you a king? Mm -hmm. Is Pilate's question to Jesus. I am a king, Jesus replies. But not of this world, you know. The, yeah. But and and then if you look at the next three hundred years of Christianity, it is that 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 the logic of the totalitarian state is that it must exclude any allegiance beyond itself. And Christianity, of course, and religion in general, says uh, that there is an allegiance that I have that transcends the political. And that is, by the definition, from the perspective of the totalist state, seditious, and rightly so. And so we worship a god who was executed by the state, by the Roman state, for sedition. And then the mocking symbol or the the mocking statement on top of the cross was, uh, here is the king of the Jews in three languages, so let it be known. This is what happens to anybody who pretends to claim the hearts of of men. So, yes, uh, and it's not just what you read in this kind of formal, creedal, uh, doctrinal statement uh, from from the North Korean uh, government, but what you see in their lives. People will probably remember when um, the the original dictator, this... um, uh, the grandfather of the present. Uh, yes, dictator, Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung died. Uh, the reaction that seemed very spontaneous on the part of North Korean citizens, crying, wailing in, in great lament uh, over the death. And then again, when his son died. Um, and if you just go on YouTube, there are a number of documentaries on North Korea where the secret cameras went in and they documented things. The obeisance, the bowing to the picture, the gratitude. There's one uh, documentary where a doctor goes in and helps correct some kind of um, problem with people's eyes. And they don't thank the doctor for coming to do it. They thank the the eternal leader. The eternal leader and bow before the, the picture. I'm so grateful. Now, maybe part of this is just that the police are standing around watching them. But <clears throat> eventually that becomes, um, you know, a part and parcel of one's self-awareness and, and self-identity. And yes, I think it is uh, an approach to religion. In positive news for North Korea, last month, uh, a group of South Korean Christian leaders and activists uh, called the International Coalition for Religious Freedom in North Korea held their inaugural meeting. And they have accused that the North Korean regime of, quote, annihilating and suppressing or uh, annihilating, not suppressing religion in North Korea. What would you advise these activists to do to promote religious freedom in North Korea with these these deep-seated, internalized 
deformation of people that has been organized by the state and with all of the institutional barriers that come with trying to influence a totalitarian society. Yeah, and the danger to the people yes. in that society. And I think uh, I, I don't want to be presumptuous and tell these folks what they need to be doing because these are people who have lived under those that regime. Um, uh, I would just um, – I, I've – met a number of people who have come out from North Korea. It's uh, very interesting. Each of the ones I've met are believers. And and their arrest and their time in some of these re-education camps, these concentration camps, was not because of their religion, because they kept that very invisible. <clears throat> and yet they they ended up being Christians and, and in a very kind of primitive or basic form of Christianity because they have no form of education or catechesis about what Christianity is other than the memory usually of the their older generations. Um, I think they have to be very prudent, very careful. Now, from the outside, we can be more radical. I'm part of an organization, uh, served on the board of the Human Rights Foundation, and they sent in balloons (laughs) with uh, not gospel tracts. They were just literature. They just send in um, MP3 players so that they could see or things that people could watch on their computers of life in South Korea. Uh, just some of the sitcoms or the serials that they have on television just so people could see. So it wasn't heavy propaganda. I think just establishing contact with people without any heavy ideological um, – I don't think you need a lot of it. All they need to do is see what you're wearing. Yeah. Uh, see how you're smelling. See how how physically fit you are. Because, you know, the, the North Korean people are shorter than the same genetic stock that was divided 40 or 50 years ago because of the lack of protein. Um, you know, it's if, – if anyone wants one symbolic – educational moment about the difference between North Korea and South Korea, just Google uh, North uh, the Korean Peninsula by night, the satellite view of the Korean Peninsula by night, and look where the lights are and look where the lights are not. Look what is literally dark and you see the difference. And it this is the same old story. This is not just North Korea and South Korea. This is East Germany and West Germany, all the way back to Sparta and Athens. Uh, And this is what happens when people are not free. So uh, my suggestion to to these, I don't know if we want to call them missionaries, but these human rights uh, Mm -hmm. uh, advocates for religious liberty, is to be very prudent and very wise and use technology. And all you have to do is let a little bit of light uh, into the dark room, and it shines shines quite brightly. Yeah, there there are some high profile figures in this movement. Uh, Thay Young Ho, who served as the a high ranking North Korean diplomat based in London before defecting to South Korea in 2016, and Kenneth Bay, a Christian missionary who was detained in North Korea from 2012 to 2014 on subversion allegations. How is it helpful to have these high profile? figures um, spearheading such an effort? Well, I think it's helpful from the outside uh, because it gives a certain level of authenticity. 
I think the secular world is going to say, oh, these are religious fanatics. They just want mission territory. But these are people who have lived in it. They were in high-ranking positions. Uh, they know the situation on the ground. In fact, I, I would love for us to be able to get one or the other or both of these kinds of people on uh, our own uh, podcasts here so that we can ask them these questions and maybe some of our uh, listeners can uh, send in some questions that they would like directed to them. But uh, I think it's very important to raise the profile. We need uh, – we're, we're going against an apathetic – a religiously apathetic society right now because uh, even though not to the extent, nonetheless, attitudinally, in the West right now, there is an antipathy, even a hostility toward religion. And I think these stories are compelling and I think can help uh, people to understand uh, what's going on. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier the contrast between life in North Korea and life in South Korea. There's also a, a deep contrast in religious life there. We've talked about the restrictions on religious freedom in North Korea. But in South Korea, in the Republic of Korea, uh, there's freedom of religion and there's thriving religious communities of many traditions. Oh, incredible. And in particular, this very large Protestant, about 20 percent yes. of the population, and Catholic, about 8 percent of the population. Right. Um, can we find hope for North Korea in this example Yes, South Korea. I think that's going to be the place where the witness of Christ is going to come from. It's going to come from South Korea. They're incredible, especially Calvinists. For some reason, Calvinists mm -hmm. got a good uh, grounding in uh, uh, South Korea. Uh, I've been to South Korea and attended mass at the cathedral. Uh, and it was amazing because there were uh, at least three masses that you'd go in, the cathedral would be full. When you came out, there was a whole other line of people to go into the cathedral again and then again. And it was organized in such a way. And when I was in Itaewon, which is the shopping district, I was just looking at the various products for sale. There was a street preacher on the corner preaching in Korean. And he saw me in a Roman collar. And he came over to me and he said to me in Korean, uh, I don't speak Korean obviously, but uh, I, I was with someone who did. He said, are you a Christian? And I said, yes, I am. He said, and he put his Bible in my hand. He said, then you should preach on the street. And I stood up on his little, uh, little step podium thing that he had. And I asked my the person I was with, how do I say Jesus Christ is Lord in Korean? <laughs> and he told me, and I shouted that, and they all applauded. <laughs> so, I mean, this is right on the street within miles of the DMZ. So uh, it is a very vibrant Christian community. In fact, we've uh, just made contact with people in South Korea for some of the books that we are translating on Abraham Kuyper, who's a a great Calvinist thinker, reform thinker, and they're interested in translating it into Korean or some of these texts into Korean. And of course, we have contact with the, the church in uh, the Roman Catholic Church in South Korea as well. Yeah. No, I know the first volume of Common Grace is already out in Korean. In Korean. I, I have a copy <laughs> at my desk. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and if North Korea opens up, if religious freedom is somehow permitted, what role should religious communities and institutions take in sort of helping to be a catalyst for a, for a rebirth of that society? We will do what we have done for 2,000 years. We will first um, 
um, teach and demonstrate our belief in the infinite dignity of the human person, which will mean a deep respect for women, a deep respect for human life in its vulnerable forms, whether they're handicapped people or uh, people who are poor. Uh, we will build institutions that take care of the ill, the orphans, uh, who will regard uh, ethnic minorities, which is a real problem in North Korea. They're, they're hated. Um, ethnic minorities with dignity will build the civic life. And I, I don't want to under um, underappreciate how difficult that's going to be because when uh, a society has been so stripped of its moral gears for so long and there's such a, a fundamental uh, ignorance of the fundamentals of Christian belief and civil life, uh, it's going to be an arduous undertaking. But I think, boy, uh, next to Next to the first centuries of Christianity, I can't imagine where else uh, you'd want to do something like this. Yeah. Well, Father Robert, thanks so much for being with us today. I'm always delighted to do it. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. And uh, we, uh, the folks of, of, of North Korea will, of course, be in our prayers. And, and those folks in South Korea who are organizing for yes. change will be as well. Yes, indeed. The American dream is fading away in much of the country, and the problem isn't pure economics, nor is it a case of stubborn old white men falling behind because they refuse to embrace progress. The root cause of our problems, crumbling families and political dysfunction, is the erosion of community and local civil institutions, most especially the church. The result of a secularizing country is a plague of alienation for the working class, as many people struggle to build families and improve their lives without the support structure they need. Join us at the Penn Brewery in Pittsburgh on August 1st to hear Tim Carney, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of Alienated America, speak on secularization and alienation in America. Get your ticket at acton.org events. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Bruce Ashford, a professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, about the subject of an upcoming talk that he will be giving here at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids on July 18. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, the title of your talk is Child, Family, and State, Religious Liberty in a Secular Age. So there's there's a lot of topics there and a lot of different directions that we could go with that one title. But first, I want to ask, what is the main point or kind of what's the main thrust of your talk? Yeah, so I was asked to give an address, a public address about a year ago on uh, the, the theme of the conference was the uh, the gift of children and the value of children. And they asked me to address specifically threats to the family and to the child and then what threats there might be. Um, in upcoming years, and then how, uh, as Christians, we might work to um, sort of push back against those threats and to bolster uh, the family when other forces are trying to uh, come against the family and weaken it. To prepare for our conversation today, you sent me an essay from an upcoming book titled Life, Marriage, and Religious Liberty. 
It's put out by the Colson Center and features essays by various evangelical, Protestant, and Catholic writers. And your essay in it is called How to Make the Case for Religious Liberty in a Pluralistic Society. And you make the case that religious liberty is critical to this conversation, too. So how does religious liberty play a part in what you say, you know, is a realization that children and obviously family are crucial and central to our social order? How, how does religious liberty play a part in that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I would start by just pointing out that, uh, you know, in the past 50, 60, 70 years, we've seen a, a, um, a, a trend uh, toward severing our uh, social sectors and cultural institutions from their roots in the uh, Judeo-Christian order. And, I um, mean, sociologist Philip Reif wrote about this brilliantly in his book, My Life Among the Death Works. He argued that uh, cultural power brokers across the board on the left and some on the right have been trying to do what no civilization has ever done, which is to construct a social ordering without a religious ordering underneath it. And he said the results of this are going to be um, uh, very deleterious for our civilization. Philosopher Charles Taylor has written on the same thing, and I agree with them um, that that's the case, and since that's the case... I. Since people, many people now tend to view Christian teaching and especially Christian moral teaching on gender and sexuality, tend to view it as implausible, even unimaginable, sometimes reprehensible. Since that's uh, the case, they're going to have a hard time understanding um, a parent's desire to teach their child that, um, you know, sex is designed to be had within marriage and for the purpose, not the only purpose, but for the purpose of procreation, and that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that God creates us um, to be a certain biological sex, and that our gender identity should align with biological sex. Folks who don't understand the Christian religion will understand that teaching, and it'll seem to them um, very bigoted, hypocritical, ugly, even evil. And so since that's the case, one of our lines of defense, I think, in the United States and and in other nations is to draw upon um, rights that are already guaranteed in our constitutions, such as the free exercise of religion. And so while I'm hoping that we can protect the family unit just merely on the basis of the value of the family unit, I think we'll probably also need to draw upon religious liberty laws. Now, a few times in our conversation, you've already used the phrase social order. And in the beginning of your piece that I mentioned, you say that, quote, the modern West is experiencing a radical desacralizing of the social order unprecedented in world history, unquote. You just touched on that a bit. But before we go on, how do you define social order? What what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, if I could... uh... You know, so every every civilization has uh, has a, a religious or moral ordering, right? Um, that there's some sort of shared consensus on what right and wrong is, and then that consensus shapes uh, the cultural institutions in a society. Um, cultural institutions uh, it could be legal institutions, educational institutions, familial institutions, judicial institutions. And then the way that those different institutions and associations relate to one another. So that would be kind of a very brief and uh, simple description of what social order is. So when you say that basically the sacredness or critical importance of the family is breaking down or isn't as well being grasped as it used to be, 
I think immediately of abortion and how so many people have turned a blind eye to the killing of so many, now 50 million babies since Roe v. Wade. You say that the breakdown is unprecedented in world history. So in in what other real ways are you seeing this happen? Yeah, let me give uh, several, and I'll actually start with the example that you gave. I think 1973, uh, right after the Civil Rights Movement had said, listen, you can't take an entire class of people and and uh, say, you know what, we're not going to give them justice and equality. And once we had just sort of turned that corner in 1973, seven black-gowned lawyers on the Supreme Court decided that, yes, in fact, there is an entire class of human beings who will not get justice and equality. That's unborn babies. And abortion is not only bad for women, bad for families, bad for law-governed democracy. It is, first and foremost, bad uh, for babies, that a baby in a womb in a hospital in America enjoys far less legal protection than an endangered species of bird in uh, the forest outside of the hospital. And that's why Marianne Glendon said that Roe v. Wade uh, was something like an environmental disaster in the moral ecology of our country. And one of the ways that it was disastrous is that w- once we made the statement that an unborn being, that a baby, um, can be um, killed in the womb, and that it can be referred to as products of conception, as a sort of linguistic camouflage, once that happened, it was only a matter of time that children and babies would be devalued in other ways. Um, the environmental movement, um, uh, many people within it now are calling upon uh, couples to not have children at all or to only have one child. So that's way, one way that um, children are being devalued. Children are also being deformed, if you will, that their formation is being misdirected um, by the things that are being taught to them in public school. They're being taught things that are against our, um, that are against science, even that a, that a man uh, can recreate himself to be a woman, or that a woman can recreate herself to be a man. Um, these are things that go against our most basic moral intuitions. They're heavily ideological, and uh, so th- those are a, f- a few ways. I mean, so far there have only been a few high-profile instances of children being taken away from their parents because of the parents' religious or moral convictions, but it's happened. The case, I forget the particulars of it, uh, maybe a year, year and a half ago, where a child won a gender uh, reassignment, uh, hormone therapy or reassignment surgery, and the, the parents uh, didn't want the child to try to live out a gender identity different from biological sex, and the judge uh, took the child out of the home. There haven't been a lot of that um, uh, yet, but I think there's a the potential that there will be a lot of it in the future. And I'll give you one example why. Uh, the United States Civil Rights Commission, about two and a half or three years ago, published a document entitled Peaceful Coexistence. And in this document, the majority on the Civil Rights Commission, I mean, there was a dissenting minority, but the majority um, elevated non-discrimination rights over religious liberty rights. And the chairman, Martin Castro, I don't have the, I don't think I have the quote with me right now, but he publicly in the paper said what we know a number of people think on the left. And he just said, listen, religious liberty is a phrase that's used as a mask for bigotry, hypocrisy, hatred, and uh, basically uh, uh, bad will. And you know, to the extent that that statement represents what many Americans believe and what many of our elite actors believe, people in the judicial system especially, but maybe some many political leaders, to the extent that that's the case, um, there's a pretty good chance in the future 
you know, uh, unless the Lord intervenes somehow, that um, our Christian moral beliefs that we teach to our children will be viewed as discriminatory and evil, and that we'll be punished for it somehow. So when you talk about religious liberty and that uh, reference that you just brought up and, you know, someone basically saying that religious liberty is just a cover for bigotry, I'd like to stress that, you know, religious liberty isn't important just to protect the rights of conscience for people who are religious, but it also helps to ensure rights and freedom for people who aren't religious. Can you explain that for us a bit? Why is religious liberty so foundational for every person, religious or not? Yeah, so religious liberty is the first freedom. Once religious liberty collapses, all the other freedoms collapse, because religious liberty is, just as I define it uh, off the cuff here loosely, it is the freedom to align my life with my deepest convictions about reality and to do so freely, openly, and without fear of reprisal by the government. Um, so the, the ability to align your life and your, your, your family life around your most, uh, you know, your deepest convictions that's the first freedom. It's a bigger and more profound freedom than freedom of speech or freedom of association. I mean, those are very important freedoms, but this one is, is deeper. And once this one is gone, um, the other freedoms collapse. You've seen this, you know, you've seen this happen uh, historically. What does moving forward from here look like? Where do you see or, or what principles do you see as being foundational in protecting not only religious liberty, but also the family unit? Yeah, so I think uh, we want to, uh, as Catholics and Protestants have uh, tried to do over the years, we want to um, cast a vision for uh, what, what I'm going to call societal pluriformity, which is just that God created the world so that we would have multiple different associations and multiple different types of communities, or as Abraham Kuyper said, multiple different spheres of life. These include art and science, and education and family and government, and that each of these spheres of culture, if you will, to use the spatial analogy, have their own reason for being. They're significant, you know, their own reason for being, but they also have limits to their jurisdiction. So you don't want any one sphere of culture to sort of rise up and tower over the others and take control of them. So I think we want to to push for that. I think it's a compelling vision, uh, societal pluriformity is, and that it it conforms with uh, the created order, the way that that, uh, God created the world to be. And I think that it's important to do that at the same time that we just, it's not like we have to stop pointing to the Constitution. I think we do need to point to the Constitution. We need to remind people, I think, of the logic of the Constitution, that many or most of the founding fathers were uh, um, very serious about the free exercise of religion, and, and then for us to give a reason why. Because when we give free exercise of religion, like you said a moment ago, this is not just for people who are adherents of major world religions. It's for atheists and agnostics. It's for people who think they're not religious. But as the Bible teaches, we know that all people are religious. And if you want to find somebody's religion, look for their God. If you want to find their God, look for whatever it is in life that they've absolutized or ascribed ultimacy to. And we want to, we want to provide uh, for, for other people the same freedom that we have. Now, there are always limits to the exercise of religion, you know, uh, for example, violence against the person or property of, an, uh, 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 of another citizen. That's a, that's a limit. If your religion is causing you to go out and, and do that, then the government has every right to, to step in and curb it. When talking about family and state, 
You know, I think most people agree that parents are best at raising their children, but obviously there are cases where the state has to step in and fill the gaps. So what does what does that relationship look like? Where do you draw distinctions between the family and state? I mean, I, I, in fact, you know, there are at least three instances drawn upon uh, Kuiper again here in which it's okay for the government to step into any sphere. Or um, to uh, one is to protect the weak from the strong within a sphere. Uh, second is to step in and adjudicate when there's a, a fight between two spheres. And so, if, uh, for example, a strip club owner wants to open um, a bit for business in the middle of a neighborhood, uh, the family has a right to say, no, this needs to be zoned differently. Or if they wanted to open near uh, an elementary or middle school, the government has every right to step in and say, no, uh, you can open your, your business in the woods, uh, but not in the middle of a housing development or next to an elementary school. And then third, um, there are certain decisions that are transspherical that involve all the spheres. The government has a right to make rules about roads or communications because those are, uh, you know, things that are of mutual benefit to all the different spheres. You're arguing that to move forward, we realize once again the importance of the family unit. So where do you turn when you stress this? What what resources best reaffirm that? Yeah, so I mean, one, one uh, if, uh, if you could, I hope this doesn't seem trite, but I would say first of all, point us to scripture and to the history books, because the family is the first institution to appear in the Bible and in history. And if you want to judge the, the health of a society, one of the best things to do is to take a look at the health of the family unit within society. And uh, the family unit has been crumbling in the United States, especially since the 1960s, um, uh, spiking divorce rates, parents having fewer children in some circles, usually just in urban circles, uh, cosmopolitan circles, people who have more than uh, one or two children are referred to sort of contemptuously as breeders. My wife and I have been referred to as breeders before. We, don't, we only have three children. So there's history and there's uh, Christian scripture. But I mean, I listed here, you know, my wife is a counselor, and so she reads a lot of, in uh, psychology and sociology. And there are a number of different significant schools of psychotherapy whose uh, main reason for existence is to protect the family unit. So you have uh, attachment theory, social cognitive theory, object relation theory, and all of these theories in one way or another point to the multiple goods that accrue to a child if the child is in a stable family with at least one parent, preferably two parents. And the, the benefits are physiological, psychological, economic, I mean, they're manifold, covering the, pretty much the totality of the child's existence. And so what Scripture teaches, I think, history and uh, psychotherapy and sociology and other disciplines, the best of those disciplines, uh, confirm. Bruce, thank you so much for joining the show today with me. And I, I'm looking forward to hearing you speak more on July 18 on this issue. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk. Thank you for listening today. If you're interested in learning more about the topics in today's show, I've linked all the articles, books, and more that were mentioned in the show notes, and those are published at blog.acton.org. Here at Acton, our podcast team is working hard to make a great show for you every week, but we couldn't do it without you. Help us make an even better podcast and reach us at actonline at acton.org. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.